But he did not answer her a word. Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I, I really love this morning's gospel. For among other reasons, um, it, it really kind of bursts the bubble of our general impression of Jesus, does it not? And I think that's actually a good thing because there's, there's always this, this dangerous tendency to, to paint a picture of who Jesus is in our own minds that, that begins to differ from who he really is as he sits right now at the right hand of the Father. And due to our weakness, we're always drawing that picture of Jesus in our heads in a way that suits ourselves, that sort of condones us, kind of what we're already all about. Creating God in our own image, as it were, to reverse what Genesis says about how God made us. This is a natural, a human tendency, um, to which God's provided the remedy, and it's the regular reading of the Gospels. When we regularly place the real Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel accounts before our eyes, it has this sort of counteracting effect to our skewed portrait. We can uh, have our picture of Jesus be brought back to the true image to come to true understanding of who he was and who he is. And I think this is really important because uh, in the last few years I keep hearing this phrase pop up kind of on the lips of Christians. Um, I think it's a very pernicious phrase and it's, it's this. They say, well, you know, something comes up and they say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus, is what they say. And it's interesting, that phrase only gets busted out when the church teaches something that's really difficult or hard or requires some amount of self-denial or when the church speaks clearly into some cultural situation. There's this thing of, well, it doesn't sound like Jesus, meaning it doesn't sound like the picture of Jesus I have in my mind. And that um, brings us, I think, to the first thing that this gospel lesson does. Is here we have a, Jesus, here we have a, a true story of Jesus um, ignoring a woman's cry. He then tells his disciples that he has nothing for her, and then he uses a metaphor that, in the, the metaphor, right, refers, if you choose out the metaphor, refers the woman to be a dog. So if, you, if we were to prioritize our conception of Jesus, this would be one of those stories we'd be inclined to say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus, right? It doesn't at first glance. But there it is in black and white in Matthew 15. This is manifestly who Jesus is. We can't escape it. He does sound like this. And of course, you know, we don't just have one story of scripture. We have this composite portrait, four gospels in fact, right? So this is the same Jesus who describes himself as lowly and gentle of heart. The same Jesus who would sweep children up in his arms to embrace them. That same Jesus would put off a desperate woman in what certainly sounds like coldness. Um, I think the phrase for, uh, very well read uh, from Romans this morning really describes this when Paul says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Right? Like kind of opposite traits, both contained within the one God. That he is both the lion and the lamb. And if this, uh, if hearing this gospel just now, if it's a little bit upsetting, like, oh, what's going on here, Lord? Um, that's actually a really good experience to have with the scriptures. It means that the scriptures are actually in the act of correcting our sort of simple caricatures that we tend to fall back on and give us instead this complex, robust picture of who Jesus, who the Almighty Son of God really is. 
And, and that should actually prompt us always as disciples to keep asking the question, Jesus, who are you? I think, actually, that's a really a trait in any good, healthy, robust relationship. There's always that fresh investigation, right? Like the marriages which are really happy 50 years in are the ones where there's still the sense of, you know, I want to learn more about who you are. And it should be the same thing with our relationship with God. To keep asking, yeah, I know a lot about you, Lord. I've been a Christian a good number of years, read a lot of Bible stories. But to keep asking, especially these troubling passages, are useful for that. Who, who are you, Jesus? Why would you do this? So that's what I want to do um, together this morning, to look at uh, some of the details of this strange account of the Canaanite woman. Um, the most sort of objectively uh, plain thing about the passage is that it's revealing that Jesus' primary mission was for the Jews. It, he came for the Jewish people first. His, his sort of primary objective in becoming incarnate and coming to earth was to bring salvation to the descendants of Abraham. Paul, in the same letter that we heard Romans, would later say, Jesus came first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And that's what we heard about, all this sort of strange language of olive trees. It's kind of a tough passage to follow, um, that Romans chapter 11. Uh, but all that thing about olive trees and wild branches and natural branches, it's saying that God's first uh, plan for salvation was for the Jewish people, and us Gentiles got grafted into that plan. And it's all part of the same work. It just is sort of a two-step process. So Jesus says, look, he reveals that in his earthly ministry he came for the Jews and it would be later, through his spirit empowering his church, that he would go out and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. To the Canaanites, including this woman, to the Greeks, the Persians, uh, even to the, uh, to the Brits, from whence our own church uh, traces its origin. His ultimate plan was to save the whole world, but he began with the Jewish people. And this is a good word to remember in these times, right? And, and having kind of this salvation, sort of one-two progression of God's saving plan in view, it helps us to understand the dynamic in the gospel today. Because it's the reason that our Lord gives for why he's not answering this woman's plea. He says in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, this isn't sort of like permanent rejection of this Canaanite woman. He's just saying, look, for now, for my temporary mortal ministry, I'm reaching out to the Jews. I will empower my apostles to come to this woman and everybody else in the whole world in just a year. But for now, his focus was on the Jewish people. But, and there's this, this is sort of the, the surprise of the story, through the woman's persistence, which is a point I'm going to come back to in just a moment, through her persistence, Jesus is moved to act even on behalf of this non-Jew, even beyond sort of his primary objective task in his earthly ministry. He does eventually uh, show mercy to her cry for help. If you will, he answers her prayer. And, and in doing this, I think Jesus is giving us sort of a, a teaser trailer uh, to kind of put a, con a modern concept back into the ancient world. Uh, but a teaser trailer of what was to come. So Jesus is ministering to the Jews, but there'd be this huge mission among the Gentiles, right? When, that, when the apostles are sent out by the power of the Holy Spirit, they go out into the whole world, and Jesus is giving this teaser trailer that, oh yeah, the good news of salvation in himself is for the Gentiles also. He only does this twice, with the Canaanite woman and the centurion in Luke chapter 7, and the only non-Jews that Jesus helps in his earthly ministry. They are the first fruits of what would be then the great ministry among the Gentiles. So kind of understanding that in view, you can kind of see why uh, 
in the wisdom of uh, the folks who put it together over long centuries, in the lectionary we'd have all these passages that we heard this morning, this prophecy of Isaiah that would say, yeah, foreigners are going to be blessed by God's people. Right? This Canaanite woman was a foreigner. And in Romans also, that the, the wild olive shoots, those who are outside of the people of God, will get grafted in and placed on the inside. This woman was sort of the very first of those for whom this was true. We, uh, we see here the kindness of God then. And I think this is something we tend to forget because, of course, the church has been so well established among Jew and Gentile now. We forget that God shows his mercy to us not only in that we're sinners, but we're also non-Jews, right? All of us, I think I know most all of you, I don't think anyone's Jewish by blood here. Uh, so it's a double mercy that we have been welcomed in to the people of God. So having that sort of objective picture in mind, I want to then look at what we can learn from this exchange between uh, this very special Gentile woman uh, and Jesus. This distraught woman who, whose daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, as it says in the text, who comes um, beseeching this man, Jesus, who, who she addresses as Lord, right? My Lord. The thing that um, is so halting and abrasive, actually, to me in the reading of this text is, is that when she cries out, she's met with just silence. There's not even an exchange. Right there, verse 23, Jesus did not answer her a word. I think if we, um, if we put ourselves in her shoes, I think most of us, if you're like me, with a rebuke like that, if someone just met me with like stonewall silence, I would just turn away. Be like, well, I guess I'm not going to get any help here. I think that's characteristic of, of so much of where we, we stumble in the Christian life. If we don't get what we want from God, if he doesn't sort of prove to be the benefactor we were hoping he would be at first, and, and I don't just mean for material needs. Someone pointed out we've never had a church service without an ambulance go by. <laughs> but Lord, we do pray for uh, whatever the needs of that ambulance uh, are going to. I don't just mean um, when we're disappointed in our requesting material things, even spiritual things, right? Like this woman is requesting an exorcism for her deranged daughter, which is a very spiritual need. And yet she's met with silence. When God doesn't appear to heed such requests, I think in general we're pretty quick to turn our back on him. When we see nothing happening, how quick are we to stop praying for that particular thing? And just to leave it then up to our own efforts, right? Because that's kind of the either or. Either we're asking God to do it, or we're trying to do it on our own, or just leaving it up to circumstance. I think sadly, um, in the face of a disappointed prayer, we may even go one step further and harden our hearts. I was, um, whenever I'm in times of uh, extreme duress, I always turn to Psalm 73. Uh, as my, my dear mum, who's here, pointed me to that in times of duress. Because uh, there's that great line that says, um, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And uh, when we're in the first night in the hospital, I'm praying that verse over and over. Like, as I'm getting no sleep, God, will be, please be the strength of my heart. Um, there's a great, another great verse in Psalm 73, a confession, when he says, when my mind became embittered, I was sorely wounded in my heart. I think just confessing, the psalmist is confessing what can happen when we're disappointed with God. We actually can start to harbor bitter thoughts against God, right? In any particular area that we've been requesting and been disappointed. Maybe we think that God is unfeeling or impotent or both. 
And, uh, and if left unconfessed, if left unchecked, such feelings actually can, they can kind of spread in our hearts, right? And what begins with just not taking one issue to God can sometimes turn to taking less and less things to God altogether, maybe backing away from God altogether for a while. And I think, you know, just as I look at my own life, I look at how long does it take before I give up asking God, right? Like maybe sometimes weeks, sometimes even days. Sometimes if I don't see like instant results as if God is some sort of heavenly ATM, uh, if I don't see instant results, I start to lose heart. And I think this, uh, this story of this Canaanite woman kind of shines a mirror to me on like how pathetic I am in my commitment to, to prayer and to asking things from God. The Canaanite woman shows us the better way um, and I think this is the big takeaway from this strange gospel passage this morning. That when her prayer doesn't seem to be heard, when she's met from, with silence from Jesus, she doesn't quit praying, she doubles down. She perseveres and actually becomes more earnest and more humble before God. Verse 25 says she came in and knelt before Jesus and just cries simply, Help me! To which you think, like in the story, like, well, we know Jesus. Okay, now he's going to help her. And he actually rebukes her a second time with an explanation of his purposes, which actually, in context, it sort of borders on the insulting. And again, I mean, just imagine being this woman. You've come to Jesus asking for spiritual help. I think it would lead to most of us to turn away from him forever, but she takes it as an opportunity to push even further in, taking the sort of humiliation of being referred to as a dog and saying, verse 27, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. I think for a long time I read that verse as sort of this witty banter, like, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Like, <laughs> And it's not witty banter. I think if you really think through like what this would have been like, this is the cry of a broken heart. Like, Lord, even if I am a dog, would you help me still? And I, what moves me so much about this is her humility before God. I think we have a good sense of what humility looks like before with each other, right? When Paul says, like, treat one, think of one another as better than yourself, and we kind of know that. Um, but to think about real humility with God, to say, yeah, God, I have no claim on you. I'm like a dog, actually, in terms of, like, my value. But would you help me anyways? Would you help me anyways? I think that, that humility uh, moves me. It's humility, it's hum, humility and, and earnestness. How much she must have desired her daughter to be healed to keep sticking through with this sort of delay and pushback from Jesus. And, and here, uh, there's where we see the real treasure. How much faith she must have had that this man really could help her, right? Like you wouldn't put up with this if you didn't think this was your only chance for salvation, which of course he is. How much there is here uh, to imitate. So I think, you know, we, I think we can kind of think through like, Jesus, why did you put this woman off so harshly? Um, I don't know if there's ever a fully adequate answer to that. I think we can keep asking why and have some mostly satisfactory answers. But I think we shouldn't get lost in the why so much as seeking to imitate the faith that Jesus commends. I mean, who, who here wouldn't want to have the Lord of the world say, Great is your faith. It's like the opposite of what he's always saying to the disciples, right? We heard last week, ho ho ye of little faith is kind of one of Jesus' refrains. But here's this Canaanite woman, great is your faith. And on the heels of that, be it done for you as you desire. What a great thing to hear from Jesus and to see miracles like she got to see a daughter being healed instantly. 
So that's, that's what I believe the Lord really wants us to hear in this gospel this morning, is this picture in this Canaanite woman of, of true Christian faith, persevering in prayer uh, with humility and earnestness. And uh, if we do those things, uh, if we do commit more fervently to prayer with earnestness and humility, I think we will all likely at some point experience what this woman experienced, a a sense of not being heard and a sense of even rejection from God. And I think when that's experienced, I think that's sort of this crucial moment uh, in a human life where we'll either become embittered and back away or be like the Canaanite woman and seize it as a chance to have our faith and our prayers enlarged and sort of deepened in their sincerity. That what would be our little size for help, rather than sort of just whimpering out, would become these deep groans of, God, I need help! I think so much of the time our thirst for God is pretty paltry. And I think part of what the Lord is doing in his wisdom with this Canaanite woman is sort of pushing her for, to have sort of a little longing turn into a big longing moving her to to actually pray on our knees. We kind of refer to being on our knees all the time as like a metaphor for prayer. But how many of us literally are like, God, help me. I need help right now. Literally on our knees. I think, you know, one of the things I've kind of been seeing more in the last couple of years too is, not totally, but in general, the prayers which I don't ever see answered are the ones which I pray with like half a heart. And that's like, I confess, it's a lot of my prayers. Like, oh Lord, you know, fix this thing and provide for this person and I'm kind of surprised that God hasn't like, the God of the universe hasn't been at my beck and call with just these half-hearted prayers and the prayers which, again, not always but more regularly I see answered are the ones where I actually care about it with earnestness and humility before God and I think you know, the the lie the enemy would say is does God need us to grovel or something Um, no, banish the thought it's not that at all what it is, is if when we understand that all prayer is the Spirit of God inspiring us to pray, when we are more earnest, we are actually becoming more in tune with God who is earnest for our salvation, who longs for the salvation of the world, the restoration of mankind. When we actually join him in our spirit with lo- hit the depth of his longing and heartbreak right, for the world, that's when we are collaborating with God in prayer and when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And I think sometimes that is why he... There are, many, there are a number of reasons why prayer might not be answered, but, but I think that's sometimes one of the reasons why he might put us off in prayer for a while, is that our heart and our faith and our longing might be enlarged to be more like his, to be collaborators with him in our prayers for the world. I think that's really, you know, that's the best I can understand and uh, the wisdom of the earlier fathers of the church would say that's why Jesus is putting off the woman in today's gospel as a means to that end of enlarging her heart to be more like God's heart for the world. So um, uh, simply then, uh, I would just encourage you to remember this. When it seems like a particular prayer or many prayers are not being answered, um, bring to mind this humble Canaanite woman Uh, and seek to imitate her with earnestness and humility and and continued perseverance. And I pray that we might see uh, such powerful things happen uh, as, as she got to witness. Amen.